Today we're going to begin a new five-part series. It's entitled Advent 2.0. Now I asked uh, my family and lots of friends about what they thought of this title, and nobody particularly liked it, so I thought I would go ahead and go with it. Some of you are familiar with the concept of Advent. It kind of depends a little bit on your church background. Some, some uh, traditions focus more on this concept. Um, it's usually uh, four Sundays of the year that lead up to Christmas called Advent. Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, and I know you don't care about that, which means coming, Okay. Uh, In liturgical churches, Advent is a season of waiting and preparation for the celebration of the coming of God's Son, Jesus, uh, to be born of the Virgin Mary. Advent 2.0 is also a season of waiting and preparation for the celebration of God's Son, Jesus, coming to the earth a second time called the second advent, called the second coming of Christ, therefore Advent 2.0. Paul Lee Tan, a student of Bible prophecy, uh, has noted that there are 1,845 references in the Bible to the second coming of Christ, or Advent 2.0. Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, that's all of the chapters in the New Testament, 318 references are made to the second coming of Christ. That's one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to Christ's return. For every prophecy in the Bible about the first coming of Christ, there are eight prophecies about the second coming of Christ. Matthew 24 and 25, that's going to be our focus over these next five weeks, are about the second coming of Christ. Matthew 24 and 25 is a section of Jesus' longest discourse on prophecy in the Bible, sometimes called the Olivet Discourse. Doesn't sound too exciting. It's because it took place on the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. So we're going to jump in, and you're going to need a Bible And uh, we're going to be in Matthew 24 and 25. We're going to talk through 25 verses. So if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, it's not going to be on the PowerPoint. So if you would just raise your hand, we'd love to hand out a copy of scriptures for you. And you can follow along. We'll even tell you what page it's on. Um, And it's on page 688 in the Bibles that we're handing out. We call them the Bridge Bibles. And we leave those out every week so that you can grab one when you can come in if you want one to use. We encourage you just so you can follow along. That's how you're going to best learn um, what the Bible has to say. So if you have questions about prophecy, this is a great place to start because our passage today begins with questions. I want to encourage you to follow along in your outline. It kind of helps you see where we're headed. We're going to talk about questions about the end of the age beginning in chapter 24, with verses 1 through 3. Um, First, the setting is in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to the buildings. Um, Let me set some of the background here. Jesus had just had a very hard day teaching at the temple in Jerusalem. The temple is the most important structure, the most important building in all of uh, the Jewish Old Testament religion. It's the central place. In this case, the building was important, okay? And uh, it's where people were to go to worship, and it was the only place on the planet where people could make animal sacrifices, and it was to be done through the priesthood of Israel, It's an important place. Jesus that day had taught three parables at the temple. He was challenged by the chief priests and elders of Israel in the temple on that day. He was confronted by the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, all religious leaders, all powerful people, all influential, and they had confronted Jesus. On that day, in the temple, 
Jesus pronounced judgment on the entire religious system in Israel, especially centered at the temple. It was a tough day. This is Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life. On Sunday, he had come in um, riding on a donkey. Palm Sunday, and he was hailed King of the Jews. Exciting day, and that's all it was for a lot of people, just a great emotional excitement day. This is Tuesday. Jesus has had a, a rough day. On Friday, Jesus will be crucified. So things are winding down, and Jesus has things to impart to his followers. Um, The disciples came up to call his attention to the buildings because apparently the disciples were very impressed by the buildings in Jerusalem, especially the temple and the entire structure. It was an impressive structure. It had been under construction under King Herod uh, 20 years before Jesus was born. So that makes this about a 53-year construction project to this point. And it's not finished. It won't be finished for another uh, 11 years after Jesus is uh, crucified. Um, Question comes in verse 2, and it's Jesus. He begins with a question. Do you see all these things? Well, of course, they saw this. But Jesus is the master teacher. This is what I love about Jesus. If I would have hung out with Jesus, if I'd have been one of the disciples, he would have been confounding me all the time. You know, he would say something, and I'd I'd think I got the right answer, and it wouldn't wouldn't be the right answer. Um, and, and he just said things to create an interest. He said things to stir up your dander and, and get you conflicted a little bit so that you would search until you had the answer. Do you see all these things, he asked. And this is one of the techniques he used. Um, the, and then he gives a prediction in uh, the second part of verse 2, uh, 24, verse 2. I tell you the truth, not, no one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So Jesus has had the hard day at the temple. Disciples are admiring this great building, and he just brings in a prediction right out of the clear blue. Not one stone will be left on another. Every one of the stones of this temple structure, of this magnificent building that's under construction right now, is going to be torn down. This now has the disciples' attention. They had questions before. Now they have real questions. Um, Some of you know that six years after the temple was completed, about 64 A.D., 63 A.D., the temple was completed in Jerusalem. In 70 A.D., Jesus has already gone back to heaven. Most of the disciples are still living. In 70 A.D., The Roman general Titus, you remember Rome ruled the world in those days. Sometimes we forget the context here. And Titus will become an emperor, by the way. He marched in Jerusalem, put that lay siege to the city, surrounded the city with an army. And uh, in 70 AD, he killed over a million Jewish people in the city when they destroyed the city and the temple. And he understood how powerful this Jewish religion was to the Jewish people. So to totally humiliate them, he had the stones of the temple. This is a massive structure. The stones were uh, 10 to 12 feet uh, wide. And they were like 3 or 4 feet high. And uh, another 3 or 4 feet this way. So these are, you know, imagine a brick but this is a granite stone. It's a one piece. It took a long time to cut those and a long time to put them into place. That's why it took 64 years to build the thing. And this Roman general had the Romans remove the stones one at a time and carry them to the Kidron Valley. They had to drag them there. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an area of uh, close to where the dump is. And... Um, Every stone of the temple was removed in 70 A.D. And and about 40 years earlier, Jesus said this would happen. So uh, 
More questions come in verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, that's why it's called the Olivet Discourse, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? They want to know when. When's this going to happen? And guess what? Jesus is not going to answer that question. He will answer that in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So if you're curious, just go over there and find out what the answer is. Uh, When will this happen? He's not going to answer it here. And what will be the sign of your coming? Or what will be the sign of Advent 2.0? What will be the sign of the end of the age? And he's going to give some general answers and some specific answers. So he's going to begin with a warning. This is a warning about the end of the age, 24, verse 4. And here's what Jesus has to say. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. This is going to be, I've separated this out as a main point because it's going to be very important to all that Jesus says. And you're going to hear it over and over and over. Watch out. This is a warning. Let no one deceive you. The main issue is deception. Let no one deceive you. Um, Because this is going to be one of the biggest problems. This is one of the biggest problems that Christians face. This will be one of the biggest problems that Christ followers will face in the end times. You may think there's going to be a whole lot more worse problems, but if people could get this one right, they could solve a whole lot of issues in their life. That's true today, too, about deception. Deception is about distorting truth. It's about changing or um, uh, it's a distortion and um, counterfeiting, misdirection. And so this is uh, what Jesus is going to start with is a warning here. Um, And this is a warning that rings through all of prophecy. And uh, it's a very important warning about the return of Jesus. Okay, the main source of the deception is the devil. Jesus doesn't refer to the devil here, but he is the main source. Um, This is a character trait of Jesus. This is how he operates. It started in the book of Genesis in the very first human situation with Eve. He deceived Eve. He distorted what God had said. He distorted God's word. Um, That's primarily how he works, is distorting the truth. When Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4, the devil came to Jesus and tempted him, remember, after he had fasted for 40 days. And what did he do? He challenged Jesus about what God had said. He attempted to change... uh, God's character and God's word in that temptation. He even quoted the Bible. He quoted the Bible. The devil quoted the Bible correctly. Sometimes he quotes the Bible incorrectly. He did that with Eve. He quoted the Bible correctly out of context with what God had already said. It's one of the most important reasons that you and I, as followers of Jesus, if we claim to be a follower of Jesus, that we need to know the truth. We need to know the scriptures. We need to know what the Bible has to say. Um, John chapter 8, verse 44, says this. Jesus said this in the book of John earlier in his ministry. He says, and he's talking to the religious leaders of Israel. This is why he got in trouble for saying things like this. You, want, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. And that's the main idea there. Not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. His whole modus operandi is distortion of the truth. Um, And here's what I want to say. As you study prophecy, as you look at future things, deception is going to be one of the main features, and it's going to be one of the main uh, oppositions that you will be against is deception. And it's amazing. If you want to talk about future things and read everything that's written in Christendom about future things, you will find, I don't know, hundreds of views. They can't all be right. And I don't claim to know everything there is to know about prophecy. I, I do have a few strong opinions, but your opinions need to be based 
on the scriptures. And um, so, thirdly, signs for the end of the age. This is verses 5 through 25. Signs for the end of the age. And it begins with birth pains, verses 5 through 8. Birth pains is a term used in the Old Testament a lot, and it refers to the pain that God's people suffer before uh, God brings deliverance. Or before they deliver, okay? Birth pains, verses 5 through 8. Starts with imposters, verse 5. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. There's that deception idea again. There are going to be people who come, and they're going to say, I am Christ. They're going to, they're going to make that proclamation. They're going to go public, and they're going to say, basically, that they're Jesus. Basically, that they're God's son. They're special, and therefore, you should pay attention to them. And some, when you think about that, that's, that seems crazy. Why would anybody do that? I mean, that, that's so obvious. How many people, raise your hand if you've ever heard of any person who's claimed that they were Christ, uh, not that you had to hear them face to face, but if you've read about it, somebody claimed to be Christ, raise your hand if you've ever read about it. So you're pretty familiar with this. Um, it's, it's happened all throughout history where people have come and claimed. Over 1,100 people have claimed publicly, historically, on record, claiming to be the Christ. And Jesus is saying, these are imposters. Uh, in my lifetime, here are some of the names. Uh, Reverend Sun Moon of the Unification Church. Some of you will just remember Moonies, okay? He claimed to be the Christ. You think all religions are equal? He claimed to be Christ. Some of you remember back, uh, this is before some of you were born, Jim Jones from the People's Temple and the Jonestown Massacre where 900 people drank Kool-Aid. Jim Jones, this is in, uh, they left America and they went to uh, Guyana and uh, Jim Jones claimed to be the Christ. Uh, Charles Manson has claimed to be Christ. Um, David, a more recent one, David Koresh, 1993, uh, the Branch Davidian in Waco, Texas. You know, over 100 people end up getting killed there in fire and a firefight. Uh, kind of a crazy story, but the point is, I want you to know, is that he claimed to be Christ. And then there's one that I remember really clearly named Lord Maitreya. It's not because I remember his name. I just remember when it happened happened on April 25th, 1982. I got up. I was a brand new pastor back in those days. I, I remember getting up, reading the Sunday paper at breakfast. On the back page was a full page spread about somebody claiming to be the Christ. You know, and I read about things like this in books. But I couldn't imagine anybody would put it in the New York Times on the back page. And I was reading the Des Moines Register that Sunday morning. Um... Here, and here's what it said. I'm going to read just a few clips from it. The world has had enough of hunger, injustice, and war. In answer to our call for help, as the world teacher for all of humanity, the Christ is now here. How will we recognize him? Look for a modern man concerned with modern problems, political, economic, and social. Since July 1977, the Christ has been emerging as a spokesman for a group or community in a well-known modern country. He is not a religious leader, but an educator in the broadest sense of the word, pointing the way out of our present crisis. We will recognize him, in, him is in capitals, his extraordinary spiritual potency, the universality of his viewpoint, and his love for all humanity. He comes not to judge, but to aid and inspire. You know, hey, we like people who don't judge, right? That's like uh, an important value, not to judge. And who is the Christ? Throughout history, humanity's evolution has been guided by a group of enlightened men, the masters of wisdom. They have remained largely in the remote desert and mountain places of earth, working mainly through their disciples to live openly in the world. The message of Christ's reappearance has been given primarily by such a disciple trained for his task for over 20 years. At the center of this spiritual hierarchy stands the world teacher, Lord Maitreya, known by Christians as the Christ. 
As the Christians await the second coming, so the Jews await the Messiah. The Buddhists, the fifth Buddha. And the Muslims, Imam Mahdi. And the Hindus wait, await Krishna. These are all names for one individual. His presence in the world guarantees that there will be no third world. And all I'm saying is, this actually happened. I was just so surprised to read this on the back of my Des Moines Register. And Jesus says, things like that are going to happen. And, he, and one of the main things he tells us, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. He says, many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ. Verses, uh, so in verse 5, Jesus starts with imposters, people who claim to be Christ. And this is some religious confusion happening. In verses 6 and 7, it's a political conflict. And he talks about wars. Look at verse 6. You, hear, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In my lifetime, uh, well, let me go back. My, my grandfather served in World War I. That was a war to end all wars. It was horrific. The worst thing that the human race had ever seen up until that point. My father and my father-in-law served in World War II. Some of you know a lot about World War II. In my lifetime, there was the Korean War. Sometimes we just say the Korean conflict. And then there was the Vietnam War. And there were two wars with Iraq and a conflict with Afghanistan. In Europe, over the last 300 years, there have been over 300 wars. Wars just seem to be a normal part of the human race. There's something about the selfish human nature and taking, stepping on people's toes and taking up territory that causes major conflicts. And Jesus said, these things are going to happen. So it's just like when we've hit world wars, it seemed like, boy, we must be really getting close to the end. And yet here we are today, and those world wars are history. Yet more will be coming. coming. And so that's the political confusion. In verse 7 also, Jesus said there will be famines. This is about the env- environmental issues, environmental catastrophes. So we're going to have a religious, we're going to have political, and we're going to have environmental stuff. There will be famines, and there will be earthquakes in various places. I could, I, uh, in times, I've, I've gone through and counted up, you know, how, you know how severe famines are and how many people are dying of starvation in the world because of famine. There's a lot of reasons why people are dying. It's not just famines, but that has had a serious impact on many countries. And there seems to be more. Or is it it just because we know more? I don't know. There's a lot of stuff happening in the environment. How about earthquakes? Earthquakes cause tsunamis. You know, in 2000, was it 2005? We had one of the largest loss of life because of an earthquake that started a tsunami wave that uh, hit Asia. And I don't know what the death toll was. I think I've heard of as high as 150,000, just like instantly. And... um, Jesus is saying there are going to be famines and there are going to be earthquakes. And then in verse 8, he says, this is the beginning. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. We're going to have religious turmoil, political turmoil, and environmental upheaval. He says they're just the beginning of birth pains. Um, He says they're like labor contractions when you think of it. Now, Of course, I haven't experienced this firsthand, but I read about this in a book. And my wife told me. And I've I've heard other people talk about this. But, you know, when labor starts, labor contractions, there's some discomfort, maybe a little bit of pain. And then as labor continues, the contractions first might be far apart, but as it continues, they get closer together. And as they get closer to the time of delivery, They become more intense, perhaps more painful, and closer together, more intense, closer together, until there's a birth. And Jesus is saying the events around us are going to become 
more intense, and they're going to get closer together, and it's just the beginning. That's what he wants us to know. Verses 9 through 14, Jesus talks about persecution and apostasy are things that will signal the end of the age. Look at verse 9, persecution first. There, uh, then, as when, the, when the beginning happens, when, when labor just is the beginning, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. That sounds like a lot of fun. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. And he says, I want you to remember these things. Let me just stop and make an aside here. In Matthew 24, the church has not started yet. The church does not exist in Matthew 24. Okay? The church will start later in Acts chapter 2. Jesus now is moving forward to the end of the age. And one of the questions you're going to have about Matthew 24 is, well, where's the church? Or what about the rapture? I believe, I believe the rapture isn't in the Bible, but the teaching of this event is. But Jesus does not refer to it at all in Matthew 24. And I think one of the reasons is, is because the church does not, is not present during this time. I think, I think the church is going to be with Jesus, caught up to be with him at this point. Maybe talking about terms that you're not used to yet. Because there's a lot of stuff here about the end of the age. You, but here's what you can count on. He's coming. You can count on that. You can take the bank. You can do whatever you want. He is coming. He won't tell us when. I don't know when. Okay? He is coming. Um, so, there's persecution. I personally believe these are going to be followers of Christ at the end of time, and it's going to be without the church. We may have to go through persecution. I, we're going through persecution right now around the world. We, we could go through persecution in the United States before all this stuff happens. We could have Christians executed in the United States for being Christians before any of this starts. It's possible. Um, but he's telling his followers here that at the end of the age, there are going to be followers of Jesus who will be handed over and persecuted and put to death, and that you will be hated by all nations because of me. So it's because of their connection with Jesus. Verses 10 through 12 uh, there's, uh, refers to apostasy. When you think of apostasy, it just means falling away, falling away from the truth, getting distorted from the truth. And, and Matthew uh, 24, verses 10 through 12, at that time, many will turn away from the faith. That's what apostasy is, turning away from the faith and will destroy and hate each other. This is not going to be a fun group of people. They're going to get far from God, and many false prophets will appear. How? Right, what, you know, at, right at the right time, when everybody's turning away from the true and living God and the true faith, there are going to be false prophets. Somebody who says they're going to speak for God, but they're not. Somebody who's going to make claims about the future, and they are not true. False prophets. They will appear, and they will deceive people. They're going to be people all over the board following prophets, people who are speaking about the future, speaking about God, and they're going to mislead people. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. So it's going to be a dark period. It's going to be a dark time. It's going to be a self-centered uh, and... Uh, there's not going to be a lot of kindness. Verses 13 and 14, uh, mission fulfillment. It almost sounds like it doesn't fit right here. Mission fulfillment. Verse 13, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And Jesus is saying to those who follow Christ at the end of the age, it's going to be a tough row. And those who stand firm, doesn't mean they won't be killed. Some will be. But those who stand firm uh, are going to be saved. And uh, they're going to be accepted into God's kingdom. And it's just going to be a really hard time to be alive as a follower of Christ. We do know from the book of Revelation that there are going to be um, 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are going to be persecuted, and every one of them is going to be alive at Advent 2.0 because they're going to live through it and be physically alive in the flesh, when Jesus returns. Um, 
And then verse 14, and, the, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come, just like that. There will be a mission fulfillment. The gospel will be proclaimed throughout the world to every nation at some point in the future, and then the end will come. That's what Jesus said. Now, the way of salvation is going to be the very same way of salvation that we have right now. That is, understanding that you're a sinner, understanding that Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sin, and that's the only way you can be saved, is by trusting in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. But there will be a focus on the kingdom in those times. What's that about? Well, Jesus is the king, the Lord of lords and king of kings. John the Baptist, when Jesus came the first time, said, Behold uh, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist announced, Behold the kingdom of God as at hand. Why was the kingdom of God at hand? Because the king was present. And there will be, in proclaiming the gospel, there will be proclamation about the kingdom to come. It will be an answer to prayer of the Lord's Prayer. And thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and that will come to pass, an answer to that prayer. Because the king will be returning to establish his kingdom on earth, Advent 2.0. Okay. There's a lot of information to cover to get started in the subject of Jesus' return. Verses 15 through 25. We come to abomination. Uh, the disciples had asked for a sign. a sign. They asked for a signal uh, about the end of the age. And this one is huge. This one is huge. It's major signal, verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place, and the holy place would be the temple in Jerusalem. It's the only place called the holy place. It's not a holy place. It is the holy place. So when you see standing in the temple in Jerusalem, quote, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel. Let the reader understand. And so Jesus is saying, this is going to be a big signal. When this happens, man, things are coming down to the end. And... Um, Jesus is making a clear connection with the future event that is tied with the Old Testament prophet, prophecy 600 years before his birth. Um, now, here's what you need to know. A lot of you know this already. There is no temple in Jerusalem today. And Jesus says there's going to be the abomination of desolation of someone standing in the temple. And there is no temple today. Okay? The temple was torn down in 70 AD. It has not been rebuilt. Today there is so much conflict in the city of Jerusalem near the temple walls where the temple originally was. And now there's a mosque right there, the Dome of the Rock. And so if anybody tears down the Dome of the Rock, we're pretty much going to be close to world war kind of thing. Um, there's no temple. So I don't see this thing happening in the next year or two. Because let me go to uh, Daniel 9.27. This is uh, the passage that Jesus was referring to. I've got to give some background here. Verse 27. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Who's he? He is the world leader at the end of the age, sometimes called the Antichrist. He will be very powerful, very popular, a charismatic leader. He will confirm a covenant. So he's going to make an agreement, an official agreement. It may happen on national TV. I could just wake up one morning and turn on the uh, world news and we could see something like this happening. There's going to be a major leader. He's going to sign a covenant with who? With the Jewish people. Because that's who Daniel's talking about in Daniel 9. He's talking about his people, the people of Israel, with many for one seven. One seven. Well, the one seven is a reference to seven years. It's a prophetic week. Seven weeks means seven years. I know I'm laying a lot on you. Just trust me. In the middle of the seven, right in the middle, halfway, three and a half years, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. So there are going to be sacrifices in the temple at the end of the age. The world leader is going to make a covenant with God's people, the Jewish people, 
and they're going to be able to rebuild their temple, and they're going to be able to do sacrifices, and then right in the middle, he's going to cut them off. He's going to say, no more sacrifice. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed poured out on him. That's judgment at the end poured out on him. And Daniel is saying there's going to be in the temple at the end times this abomination of desolation. The great thing is Paul gives us a little more insight in the New Testament. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Concerning Advo- Advent 2.0, he says... Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, because there's kind of a danger of being deceived. Jesus said that. Don't be deceived. Do not become uneasily settled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come, this time of judgment at the end of the age. Next slide. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. Have you heard that before? For the day will not come until the rebellion occurs. This is the apostasy. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's the Antichrist, this great world leader who's going to sign a covenant with the Jewish people for seven years. And he is the man doomed to destruction. He's doomed to judgment. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship, so that he sets himself up where? In God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. That's the abomination of desolation. It's one of the greatest sacrileges of all of history of the human race. This is what Daniel referred to. It's in the end times, and it's going to happen in the temple in Jerusalem. I thoroughly believe there will be a temple rebuilt at some point in the future. It's one of the great things about studying prophecy. You look, you study the Old Testament, and you see prophecies that were made. And then as you can see, as time progresses, prophecy gets fulfilled. How did that happen? As you study how prophecy gets fulfilled, you can look to the future. Is this literal? Yes, it's literal. And um, so that's where... Second Thess, two one through four, and that's the abomination of desolation. Now, major distress, verses sixteen through twenty-two. Major distress. Then let those who are in Judea flee. So he's back in the nation Israel. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives right now. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He's talking about the future end times. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. You know, the roof was like their their front porch and their back patio all at once. That's where they hung out. So if you're on the roof, don't go in your house. If you see this stuff coming, get out of there. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. You better flee when this starts happening. How dreadful it will be in those days. This will be the crisis of all time. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Now, he's not down on pregnant women and nursing mothers. It's just they're going to be in a tough state. This this is going to be a time where there's going to be a great judgment. There's going to be a great uh, suffering at this time. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter. Um... If you have to be out in, the, in cold weather and you're fleeing on foot and pray that not be on the Sabbath because the whole city is going to be shut down on the Sabbath. Uh, for then there will be great distress. This is how great it is. Unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. This, he's talking, this is a future time of great distress on the earth. So, you know, no matter how bad we've experienced things or how bad you've seen or read in history, there is something coming that's greater uh, than all of that, a distress on earth. And the Bible calls it the tribulation, the great tribulation, especially the last three and a half years. Verse 22, um, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So the only hope is to flee for safety, and it will be so severe, there, there will be no time to plan or prepare. And that's why it's important to live prepared now. Um, to be ready with God. Uh, there will never be a di- time of distress like this in history, except this one time. 
and it's going to be cut short. God is going to put boundaries on it. God, God, God is going to put limitations on it for the sake of his elect because he wants some of his followers to live through it. The Apostle Paul makes reference to this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5. through 5, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Jesus just gave us a glimpse of how terrible. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Next slide. Without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. We can look and we can, we can see in our world today every one of those. But yet, it's not even close to what it's going to be like in the future. How terrible the times will be in the last days. So a major deception, verses 23 through 25. We're coming down to the end. Hang in there. We're almost finished. Remember, Jesus said, watch out. Let no one deceive you. And here's what he says in verse 23. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear, perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. And then he says, see, I've told you ahead of time. I want you to know about this. I want you to be prepared. I want you to be ready. I want you to know the truth. And it comes from me, he says. There's going to be major religious deception in the end times. There are going to be people who claim that they are the Christ. There are going to be people who claim that they speak for God. They are false prophets. And please notice, this is where Christians get so confused. There's going to be supernatural power with false prophets and people who claim to be Christ. There are going to be people who can do miracles. And there are people today on earth that can do miracles that are not from God. Yes, God can do miracles, and there are people today who God uses to perform miracles. But these are people who are doing miracles that are not from God. They have a different source, a different power, and it is very supernatural. It'll be very impressive, and people are going to want to, they're going to clamor to it. It's going to be exciting for some of those people to see these great, powerful things happen. Miracles take place. Maybe people will be healed, you know, miracles. And they're going to be, oh, that's got to be from God because it was a healing. Well, the enemy, historically, all through the centuries, has been able to heal people. God can heal people, but there have been temporary healings um, supernaturally from the dark side as well. Um, the most important thing is I want you to see is Jesus said, see, I've told you. You don't have to be confused about this. See, I've told you. Examine everything around you by the truth. See what I've told you, what's coming. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul hits it. He says, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith, that's the apostasy, and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Demons teach, you know that? There will be teachers empowered demonically. I think that can still happen today. Teachers empowered by demons. You know, some people get the idea that religious, re- religion is sort of just harmless. And um, we have world religions today that have supernatural stuff and supernatural ideas that are not from God. This is what Paul says. Following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. You just need to know that. You don't have to be afraid of it. You never have to be afraid of the enemy. You just need to understand. And our our God is way more powerful. It's important that we know the truth. So let me just close by asking the question, why study prophecy? Why pay attention the next four weeks as we talk about Advent 2.0? Thanks for asking the question. Number one, Jesus is the central theme of the Bible, and end times are about his return. God wants you to know about Jesus. That includes the end times. And this is about your relationship with him. 
What do you know about him? And one day, you and I are going to stand before Jesus. And how well do you know him? And are you going to feel like, this is an exciting day. I'm ready for this. That's why it's important to understand that Jesus is a central theme. And it's going to be important as we, this unfolds for us is that we learn more about the return of Jesus. And this whole idea of Jesus being the central theme and the end times are about his return, this uh, ties the entire Bible together from Genesis to Revelation. So when you start getting a handle on this, and you may already have, it's going to put a lot of pieces in the puzzle together for you. Secondly, second reason, God gives special favor to those who understand and internalize truth about future things. Anybody here need God's favor on their life? The scripture says God gives special favor to those who pay attention, to those who take these things to heart. Revelation chapter three, 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, referring to Revelation, which is all about future things, And you know what Revelation is about? It's about only one revelation. It is the revelation in chapter 19, and it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it is Advent 2.0. That's what it's all about. The entire book is all about that. And blessed is the one. God's favor on you. Blessed be you who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what is written in it, because the time is near. And the application goes to prophecy in general about the coming of Jesus again. God gives special favor. And thirdly, and this is the last one, moral purity increases with the hope of Jesus' return. Let that soak in. Moral purity increases with the hope of Jesus' return. Boy, we need this as a church, don't we? The church of Jesus Christ needs this, purity. We would be powerful if we were pure. We would have an impact on our world if we were morally pure before God and powerful. Um, 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God, And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, Advent 2.0, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Focusing on his return and being ready. God, here I am. I'm yours. I want to be everything you want me to be. Today could be the day. I may see your face today. And I want to be up for this. Because when we start thinking about this, what, what is really important in life gets important. And the priorities start slipping to the top. And we got sin in our life. we got junk in our life. We want to walk away from it. We want a fresh start. We want to be clean. And we want to stay clean day after day. So if I fall down, I need to get back up. When I sin, I just need to say I'm sorry, I ask for forgiveness, and get back on. That's how you stay clean. Nobody's perfect, okay? We're not talking about perfection. It's never been an issue. Perfection has never been an issue, only Jesus, okay? And last passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, 15, 13 through 15. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Get your minds out of neutral. Wake up. That's what he's saying. Wake up. Wake up. That's a common theme of the Bible. Wake up. Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given when Jesus Christ is revealed. Advent 2.0. Revelation chapter 19. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 25. Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully. That's how you get uh, 
moral purity increases by setting your hope fully on the grace to be given when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who calls you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. That's it. You get one takeaway here today. Just be holy. What does that mean? It means to be separated from sin and set apart to God for service. To be holy just means to be set apart and say, okay, this music stand could be holy. We just set apart and we're going to give this to God and we want this to be used only for God and if it gets dirty, we're going to clean it up and we're going to present it to God. It's set apart. That's what it means to be holy. And God wants us to be holy. He wants us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. He wants us to be holy. doesn't mean I, if I sin, I need to confess my sin, get back up, say, God, here I am again. Thank you for your forgiveness. I'm set apart again. It's that simple. Be holy, because that's how God is. And as we focus on Jesus and who he is and his return, we keep that in our mindset. It's going to make a powerful difference. Let's stand for prayer. Thanks, Father, for um, Matthew 24 and 25. And the instructions Jesus has given us about the end of the age and about his return. And God, it's my prayer that uh, this will encourage us and be profitable for us. And Lord, as we focus on these things, God, that, that you would use it in our lives to help purify us, to help us evaluate our priorities and put you first. And that uh, our desire might be to set apart our lives for you, to be holy. And we know we're not perfect, but we can be holy. And you can enable that for us because you provide forgiveness and you provide the power of the Holy Spirit to live every day. Help us to honor you for Jesus' sake. 